Stay hungry, stay foolish. Any leader in any size company, no matter the size or sector, feels the pressure to innovate, find new ideas and business models, and create enduring customer value. There is no one formula or set process to find and execute the ideas that achieve these goals. Customers set moving targets, shareholders are unforgiving and demanding, and society expects companies to care about much more than the bottom line. The answer to the dilemma every business faces today is that innovation is exhilarating, rewarding, and even fun when it is approached as a unique challenge, but it also can be polarizing, unpredictable, and scary. Success requires that leaders rethink how they lead innovation. Leaders know they must set aside preconceived notions of what works and look to those who have already walked in their shoes. Changemakers are few in number and are worthy of encouragement and support. They want to create and deliver value, bring together teams to solve big problems, seize opportunities and make a difference. They want to succeed for themselves, their communities, families, friends and loved ones, and for their broader stakeholder ecosystem. Theirs are hard-won achievements. We welcome author of the focus of today's episode, The Changemaker's Playbook, How to Seek, Seed and Scale Innovation in Any Company, and herself a changemaker. Amy Raiden, welcome to the show. So great to be here, Aidan. Looking forward to the conversation. It's great to have you on the show. And what I really liked about the book, Amy, is it's not just based on theory and it's not just a framework. You have the scar tissue of what it's like to be a change maker, which is often a very lonely place. Scar tissue is a great way to think about it. You know, it, it's, <laughs> there are ways to combat the loneliness, and I'm sure we'll talk about those on the show. But yeah, when I set about to write the book, I really spent some time investigating the market and saying, you know, we've got a lot of books on innovation out there. Do we need another one? And I had great passion to share my expertise with, with other people. But also what I saw was a lot of what's available is um, not that it isn't great content, but coming from people with academic and research backgrounds or consulting backgrounds. And you're right. I said, you know, I've been there and done it in some really difficult, complex and demanding environments and felt I might have something new to say. And so that was really the genesis for the book. We'll get into the framework in a few minutes, but it'd be, it'd be great to give context of that scar tissue because you you served as a chief marketing officer and you were given innovation as a side project. I really laughed at that because it's like, it's the concept, it's the it's the actual mental construct of what innovation is in so many people's minds is, is just shiny new stuff. So Amy, on top of everything else you're doing as chief marketing officer, we'd like you to innovate and basically change the company as a side project. Uh, yeah, my CEO literally did come to me one day and said, I want you to make the business more innovative because we're not innovative. And we need to be innovative. And this was, at the time, this was the Citigroup's North American Cards business, which had, um, I think, when we, when that year, probably 30 or 40 million customer accounts, and we were generating uh, close to $5 billion in earnings. So a massive, uh, probably one of the world's largest consumer franchises. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, I joke about it those days and I go, well, you know, you don't say no to the boss. And I said, okay. And I walked out of his office and I said, you know, well, did I just draw the short straw or, um, or does he think I'm really special? And it, 
definitely um, a tough and exhilarating ride, but I, I wouldn't trade it. But I think you're right. A lot of organizations, I think, start out realizing, you know, we have to do something about growth. We need innovation. Who should we assign that to? And at the end of the day, great teams that are truly driving innovation persistently, it's the work of everybody. There is a skill and discipline to it. And so having dedicated resource to start an organization on the journey is, is great, but they need a lot of support. And in the end, it's, it's sort of everybody's business. It's how the place has to operate. Yeah, and I think that's what comes true in the book, Amy, to your credit, is you understand what it actually takes for innovation to happen. And I was telling you before the show, I worked in head of digital, digital transformation, then went on to innovation frameworks, et cetera. And I now work in leadership and organizational change because I realized the same thing, that you cannot change business models until you change mental models. I think that's really true. And to your point earlier, there's, a, there, there's definitely a leaning among some people to say, oh, innovation, technology, innovation, cool stuff, innovation, Ooh, that's stuff we have to do, but we're not really sure how to quantify it. So we'll put it in this innovation bucket. And really, in my mind, innovation starts with identifying big unsolved problems in the market that real people have that you want to solve, and then validating how to solve them, figuring out what the viable business model is um, so that the so that the idea can be commercialized in a way that's going to be durable and then actually getting it to market. So a lot of it comes down to execution and execution of great innovations requires many skill sets and then leadership to, to bring people together against the vision. It's what I love about the book, Amy. You look at every aspect that actually helps innovation really take root. And that includes marketing, communications, having a North Star that the company buys into. Let's zoom out for a second and go up on the balcony, look down on the dance floor and talk about your framework. So the three-part framework, and then we'll zoom into little parts of the framework throughout the show. So what I did was, you know, I started out just to step back thinking, you know, how do I really unpack what I've learned over, at this point, a, a couple of decades about how you actually get from the idea to a viable concept of business model to scaling and commercial success. And so that was quite a, you know, peel the onion exercise. And I, I found both through just writing it out and, and I involved about 50 other experts, corporate innovators, investors, and founders um, to really validate and enrich my own views, because my experiences are, you know, all encompassing, certainly. What I saw was that there's really, and I call it a framework, not a process, because process implies linearity to me, and innovation is anything but linear, but that the framework really has three major components. The first one is seeking, where you're really, you're figuring out what's the problem I want to solve does it line up with what I'm passionate about and the purpose that I want to serve? And how do I start to move towards creating a real concept? And then the second phase, seeding, is really starting to engage users and buyers and other stakeholders in formulating the concept through very iterative prototyping, which I know is familiar to a lot of people. But then not just stopping at a concept that people love and want to own, but saying, hmm, based on people, based on how people are interacting with what it is I do, let me start to understand the drivers of my business model. 
So you can really start to say operationally, financially, from a regulatory perspective, if that's an issue with your product, how might I get to market? And then actually getting resources in place to do that. And then finally, the third phase, which is really scaling, which is, you know, go to market, but starts with this notion that I think is very important of a green light moment where you really stop and and rethink, well, what got me here won't get me there. And so what do I need to do to really scale up? Because whether you're in an established business or you're a founder, that's definitely a point that becomes very tricky for many change makers. You know, formulating the concept of the business model in prototype fashion is very different from being in the market and actually attracting customers. So it's this seek, seed, scale framework captures basically the things that that are necessary to to drive an idea to commercial success. And you rightly identify, even throughout the whole framework, that there's no timeline on this. And this is actually where the main business, so the anchor business struggles when it, it maybe have an innovation arm or a change maker like you within the organization. They struggle because they're like, okay, let's put a time on this. And I know it has to be a fuzzy, even a fuzzy time, but the business wants to plan everything in an Excel or a Gantt chart. Right. And I think one of the other things that's one of the things that's particularly challenged is that businesses operate on fiscal year cycles and innovation doesn't happen on a fiscal year cycle. And innovation really should, I think speed is essential, right, to driving an innovation forward. So there's this, you know, think about it. Um, Established companies are designed to produce predictable results and to shut down any risk to those results, right? So they're all about continuity. Then you have this these innovations coming along that are sort of germs of ideas, and they are like bolts being thrown into those gears. They're creating discontinuity. And so there's this um, terrible mismatch unless there's really the leadership at the top of the house and real strength and courage on the innovation team to keep the ideas alive and moving forward. But one of the, what I spent a lot of time on when I ultimately became a chief innovation officer was not on the concepts themselves, but on figuring out how do you get these discontinuous framework to function in an environment that demands continuity and predictability and kind of saying, okay, well, the traditional process works this way to get a decision, but we need to do it this way. And here's why the organization is not going to be, you know, put out of business or put in jeopardy by the fact that we're doing this another way. So it's getting those two worlds to come together is the crux of where I think the challenge is when established businesses try to to truly innovate for growth. And like you said, like we talked about the introduction, the lonely place that this can be as a corporate entrepreneur or an innovator. And also, to an extent, you can be ostracized quite a bit because it polarizes the business because of what you represent. You represent change, transformation, and people automatically think that's going to affect my status or my remuneration or where I will be in the future within the business, how I might be recognized. Yeah. And I think it's natural. It's a human reaction to say, what's going to happen to me? Right. So I never fault people for that. I think that the challenge comes down to if some people aren't 
mad at you or not liking what you're doing, then you have to ask yourself if you're really being innovative and pushing the envelope. You have to have a little bit of a thick skin and accept the fact that leading an innovation effort or any kind of change or transformation effort in a successful established organization is never going to be a popularity contest. Even if you have the CEO 150% behind you, you are going to be upsetting some people. I used to joke at one of my jobs that I was trying to build the army of the willing. And I would literally, when people in this particular place, when people reached out to me proactively to inquire about what I was doing and they wanted to come to my meetings or get involved in my projects, I, I started a list. I had like an internal email list that I called the army of the willing. And because you want to build support wherever you can find it, you have to find ways to keep people comfortable who need to be supportive, but accept the fact that not everybody is going to like what you're doing. I think one of the things that got me starting on building a, a pretty good external network was just I, I couldn't always find the supporters inside. And so go outside and find common ground with people who are doing similar work in other organizations. And they sort of remind you that you're, you're not crazy. And yeah, this is, this is hard work, but it really is a lot of fun and it's important work. I love the Army of the Willing. It's a great one because you really do need support and it's moral support as well. And you talk about this in the book, the human aspect of you as an entrepreneur or a corporate innovator, that you need to create this tribe and the tribe will grow. It's almost like a snowball effect. You will get progress this way, but it's not just a case of having support of the CEO. That's not going to ever be enough. No. Big organizations, I mean, you have two people, you have politics, right? So whether it's a big organization or a little team, there will be politics around what you're doing. And great CEOs expect their teams to execute. The times that I could actually run upstairs to my CEO to say, can you break this logjam for me? You know, that has to be the very rare exception to how you're operating. So the way you're going to get things done, leading any kind of innovation effort, is by building that base of support around the organization. And I think there is a positive self-selection that happens with these kinds of projects. I certainly found this also when I was leading digital transformation for City Cards, was that there are people who see the world is changing. For my business to grow, I need to change along with it, adapt my role, continuously learn, seek opportunities to be part of those efforts. And those people will join your army. Then there are lots of other people who you need. And I think it's, it's bringing people to the table in ways that help them feel valued and give them a peek under the hood of what you're doing and letting them contribute. It'll wear a lot of people down in a positive way. And, and get them on board. I mean, we used to do all kinds of informal, just brainstorms where we pull people in from all over the organization. There, there's a lot you can do just by honoring the fact that you value the institutional knowledge and what people can contribute. But again, some people will never be on board and that's okay. And actually, when you talked about that, so the internal brainstorms, you also recognize that you need an independent voice as well. You almost need somebody who's no vested interest. And this is where the consultant or the hired hand comes in. And I know myself, I told you this before, as a head of innovation in my past, I was quite allergic to consultants, but now I see the value that you can bring because you can respectfully challenge and you can remove groupthink as well, or at least challenge it. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I never call myself a consultant, but one of the things that I really enjoy about advisory work that I do now and why I personally chose to do this at this stage of my career is that you can come in as an outsider and be quite provocative and controversial and helpful, but safe because you're going away. So personally, it's very satisfying. And there are, I think, people who truly want their innovations to succeed will avoid keeping everything tightly inside a group. I mean, you have to stay connected to your users and buyers. You really want to stay connected to what's happening out in the world, uncovering trends that you may not be aware of along the way that could affect what you're doing, regulations, things that competitors are doing. So finding ways to keep the tent open and consultants are one path. I do think outsiders will tell you things that people inside may not feel safe telling you. And so there's a real value to keeping sort of a 360 focus as you're driving forward. You do mention that as well, the value of psychological safety within an organization to be able to challenge as well. But like I mentioned, you look at all aspects for innovation to succeed and you identify four under the seeking stage which are purpose, passion, promise, and positioning. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I started working on the book, that chapter was just about positioning. And I started to talk to people. And really, one of my personal ahas was what a big role purpose is playing in the world today. And I think, let's face it, the last 10 or 20 years, our society has been through a lot. There's clearly a lot going on now and a lot ahead of us. And you have just, you know, certainly generationally, millennials looking much harder at the role of purpose in life and in terms of the brands they want to affiliate with. You know, some companies are approaching purpose as, you know, it's an ad slogan. When I talk about purpose, I think about it as, you know, why does your business exist? What is the real purpose of what you are doing? What's the deepest level at which you're trying to serve the people who you want to engage with your business. And then thinking about how do I reflect that in every decision that I make? And that's what I think being a purpose-driven company is about. So building an enterprise where employees are committed to advancing the purpose, they believe in it. You know, it relates a lot to values, but as you're making decisions about your products, your services, your systems, all the tough trade-offs that we make as we're advancing a business uh, in the market, are they connecting back to your purpose and are you kind of sticking to your values? And I think you'll see, you know, one example of a company that I think is demonstrating the financial value of being purpose-led is Unilever, who's built over the last years, you know, portfolio, I think they have dozens of brands that they call their purpose-led brands, and they are outperforming the consumer packaged goods com uh, category by a good deal. So I just noticed, you know, last week, looking at earnings reports, Unilever up 5%, Kraft Heinz which is kind of the other end of the spectrum, being driven by a very traditional take out the costs, you know, private equity strategy, just took a, uh, I think, $16 billion write down. So there's a real purpose, being purpose-led, being passionate about what you're doing. It doesn't stop at being a feel-good. It's a connector to growth, and it helps you increase the chances that what you're going to do is truly meaningful and therefore innovative.
to the people who you want to serve. And one of the other things you talk about is, for example, Unilever, that brands are now asking beyond our purpose in the community. They're going, how do we infuse our purpose or our positioning into the culture of the business as well? Right. And I think that's really important. And I even think back to my days and I started my career at American Express. And, you know, people didn't talk about purpose or customer centricity or all the buzzwords of today were kind of not in the in the business lexicon. But at least when I was at Amex, we'd sit in the room making decisions, you know, a very, very cross-functional collaborative culture. And people would always say, you know, okay, what's the impact on the card member? What's the impact on the franchise? What's the impact on the brand? What's the impact? You know, that you really thought in a broad way of, is this the right thing to do because of what we stand for? And having a purpose-driven, I think when you, one behavior, when you have a purpose-driven culture is that you would be able to go around and see meetings happening where all of your people are asking that question and they're making the right calls. They're not trading off a short term against your purpose and what you stand for because people believe that that commitment is what is going to allow them to play a healthy long game. I loved when you talk about engaging employees, you suggest the gift of three questions. It'd be great to share that. A friend of mine who actually runs an innovation consultancy has this exercise that he does with employees when they join his firm. And, and I just love it because the whole premise of his organization and the culture that he wants to build is one of question asking. And I think that's so critical to innovation because even back to the beginning of the book, when I talk about discovery and throughout the book, as I, as I build different examples of what it takes to innovate, being able to be a good question asker and an open-ended question asker, not a leading the witness question asker and not being afraid to ask questions is so important to discovery, you know, uncovering needs. And then along the way, getting all the answers that you need to make your innovation a success. And so what they do in this company, it's called Now What? They, as part of their kind of onboarding, if you will, of new employees, They'll have some kind of a team meeting where the new person gets to ask three questions and they can ask anything they want. And the idea is to get the person comfortable, clearly based on the demeanor of everybody in the room and the way the answers are given, to get them comfortable and in the habit of being able to ask questions and realize how constructive and giving the rest of the team members are. You really do emphasize that as a part of discovery is not only asking questions of your own people and of the marketplace, but actually asking questions of the potential customers, the prospect, and co-creating with them as well. I think there's definitely with question asking, it's quality, not quantity. And some of question asking, by the way, is just observing. So I think really important to avoid kind of, do you like my concept? Would you use this? Those are, those are kind of really, because, you know, the more developed and baked, you know, we tend not to, sometimes we don't want to show people our concept until it's pretty baked. The problem is the more developed and finished your concept looks, the less willing people will in general want to give you feedback because they won't want to hurt your feelings. It's like you're done. So they're not going to tell you you did the wrong thing, right? And obviously I'm generalizing, but asking people, about their problems and 
well, gee, why are you doing that? You know, like I remember going into somebody's home when we, when I was in financial services and they had a shopping bag of unopened statements in the corner of their dining room. And, you know, like, gee, what's that over there? Or show me where you pay your bills and, and how does that work? And how do you set that stuff up? And so asking questions, not around my product, my idea, but trying to understand the full context because you need to understand if, if you're seeing things from the customer's perspective. Another one of my favorite questions when I'm talking to founders, because I do some angel investing and, and founders, you know, they pitch their businesses with great passion and sometimes get a little carried away and, you know, will represent things and you're not sure they're right. One of my favorite questions is, well, how do you know that? <laughs> that, that's really interesting. How do you know that? So that that's also a great, that's a great question when you're talking to uh, people who are experts. At the how do you know that is a great open-ended way of kind of getting below the surface and understanding what's really underneath. When you speak of entrepreneurs and you think of a corporate change maker, you talk about, for example, you're on a panel talking to a potential startup that you might invest in. You will consider the hot coal test. Yeah, and this is something I've really seen from the last four or five years, you know, spending a lot of time with startups, is that at the end of the day, especially at, at an early stage, whatever is represented as the concept, the business model, you know, those magical five-year forecasts with the hockey stick that starts to kick it in year three, none of that is at all likely to happen, right? Things are going to change. And none of us have... Um, an ability to totally predict the future, right? We could just guess. And so what it comes down to, and I think the same could probably apply internally, you know, to entrepreneurs, is can the person pass the walkover hot coals test? And by that I mean do they have the tenacity, the passion, the sense of commitment, the ability to collaborate and execute and get things done and listen so that they can go through the inevitable issues and overcome the, no matter what, they will happen obstacles and potential derailers that can throw you off course. And so it's the strength of that founder or the, the champion of the innovation to endure with real leadership and character that becomes the make or break for a lot of, of startups and, and internal innovations. It goes back to what you said about the importance of that thick skin because you are going to need it in this role. But also, I need to call out that you talk about just not the corporate change maker. You talk about the change maker being a startup CEO, for example, as well, or even a business person, an SME. You are all change makers. And in that, you pose a million dollar question Can established enterprises incubate and launch new business models? Well, they certainly try, and I am inherently an optimist, and I think you certainly see examples, constantly seeing the data about how many companies are, you know, were in the Fortune 500 20, 30, 40 years ago and are no longer there. So I think there's a natural evolution that will always happen with businesses coming and going. I think you certainly see many bright light examples of CEOs who have a real commitment to doing the hard work that it takes to execute growth, which involves, in part, committing to innovation as a core part of what they're doing and managing that discontinuity alongside the continuity. I think it's really hard, but I think you certainly see leaders who do it. And I think many companies struggle to do it. 
you know, one of the things that's been interesting to me is working in uh, in big companies where I spent a lot of my career. I mean, you can probably relate to this. People say, oh, those startups, they get away with murder. You know, they don't have to be profitable now. They don't, they're not under as much regulatory scrutiny. They can do whatever they want. Then you go to the startup world and, you know, there's a lot of founders, a lot of startups will say, those big companies, they're dinosaurs. They have no idea what they're doing, but I really need their business because I'm a B2B. And kind of where I net out is, you know, they really need each other. And having been on both sides of the pond, I think there's strengths on both sides. I think startups bring incredible agility, resourcefulness. They just find ways to get things done with very little money that is just impressive for someone like me who came with a set of assumptions about, you know, what do you really, how much money do you really need? So they bring burning passion. Of course, they could be furiously and passionately, as I say in the book, you know, barking up the wrong tree. And then you have, you know, with established companies, incredible discipline and depth of knowledge around skill sets that are really essential if you want to run a business at scale. So I think the successful businesses, whether on the startup or the corporate side, are going to be the ones that find the way to come together and respect sort of a best of both worlds model, which will still come back to leadership, right? Absolutely. And here I pulled out a quote actually in this element, and it's about can established enterprises incubate and launch new business models? And you say, yes, it, but it depends. But the odds are significantly higher when the organization invites in outsiders who are not wedded to the traditions and who bring new metaphors from other sectors and who are able to connect the dots between old and new. And I love this, but it doesn't always mean that it works. And I was telling you before the show that I worked in one of these established companies and I was head of innovation, but I was rejected like a really bad organ transplant. Yeah, it doesn't always work. You know, I think I was very fortunate in my experience as chief innovation officer and and head of a digital transformation. Of course, I was unlucky to be in that role on the eve of the financial crisis, working for a major global bank. But for the several years before that, I was incredibly lucky to be in an organization where there was huge breadth and depth of resources, where I had established sufficient credibility to be in the role, I had a strong sponsor, but where we also really tried to manage our pilots and our experiments with very much a fail fast, fail cheap attitude, and also trying to always connect back to help people understand what is at least our hypothesis about the connectivity to what we're doing and the business strategy and objectives, right? So we were not the cool stuff shop. We were very purposeful about enabling the business strategy. It's just the way we were, our contribution to doing that was very different than traditional product managers. This comes back to what you said at the start about positioning, because positioning, even what the term innovation means, who is Amy Radin, our head of innovation? This is Amy. This is what she does. This is what her goals are. Because as you said, everybody thinks, how's this going to affect me? And you talk about the WIFM principle being key here. So I started my career in marketing, and early in the day back then, I learned a term, WIFM, the WIFM principle, what's in it for me? And people want to know, how is this going to affect me? Is this innovation effort, this strategy, this commitment, is there career opportunity for me? Is my job going away? I think it's a natural need that all of us have, and good innovation leaders help people understand 
but also are honest about when they really don't know, because innovation is loaded with, with ambiguity. In the years immediately following the financial crisis, so much fear, really well-founded. I mean, look at the job losses globally and the turmoil in people's personal lives. At the end of the day, most of us are waking up in the morning and doing our jobs. You know, hopefully we like them, although a lot of people don't. You know, we've got personal goals also. We have family, we have friends, we want to travel. There, are, We have student loans. There are things we want to do. So feeling a secure foundation around work is really important. You know, for most people on earth, it's, it's not an option, but people have fear. And I think even now in a better economy, it's really important to help people understand as much as possible. You know, how will this affect you? Now, sometimes it's going to be, you know what, we're going through a big change. This is going to be very different. And the skills and competencies and what we're going to need to go forward are not the same. And so then I go back to what I've always coached people on my teams to do. It's, you know, your best security to maintain a role in a world that's going to continue to be very fast changing is to continuously learn to sustain the highest possible level of intellectual curiosity that you can and to align yourself with cultures that where what you do is valued and where you feel you can do your best work. I absolutely love that, Amy. I think that's a way we should lead our lives. And the Innovation Show is about this changing and growing and learning as a human being and then matching that to a career that can bring forth your best values. So uh, absolutely love that. And, and it's a great way to finish today's show. But before we do, it'd be great to share where people can find you if they want to get in touch for some of your corporate work. Maybe it's a startup looking for investment. Maybe it's just to get a copy of your book. Sure. And, and thanks so much for having me. And I've really enjoyed this conversation immensely. So listeners can find out more about me by visiting my website, which is www dot amy radin r-a-d-i-n dot com or you can go to your favorite ebook seller obviously i'd love it if you pick up a copy of the book if you go to my website you can find my blog posts a free download of the infographic of the seek seed scale framework you can sign up my newsletter and also pick up an excerpt of the introduction and first chapter of the book please stop by i'd love that author of the change makers playbook how to seek, seed, and scale in innovation in any company and changemaker herself. Amy Radin, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Have a great day.